What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the 1776 Podcast. This week, my co-host Forrest James and I will be interviewing David Baker. David is the founder and executive director of the Watershed Association or uh, Wimberley Valley Watershed Association. Uh, Jacob's Well, if you're familiar with that, in large part is here today in the park that it is because of David. Uh, David is one of the original owners back in the 80s of Jacob's Well, uh, which led to him founding the Watershed Association um, and then really spearheading, uh, creating what Jacob's Well is today um, and protecting a lot of the property in the area. The Watershed Association is buying up land all in that area to protect the watershed. There's also some of the land that will be opening in the coming months or years as uh, new preserves, new parks for us to visit, which is very, very exciting. So you'll learn about that today. And we also dive into a variety of conservation topics, talking about the aquifers, um, what conservation easements mean. I mean, there's a variety of topics. We go on for a while. Um, but if you're interested in you know the outdoors, conservation, Jacob's Well, what's happening down there, a lot of the water issues we face, if any of that you know is something you'd like to learn about, this is the episode for you. Uh, very thankful for David for everything he's done for conservation um, and opening up uh, new parks for us, which is really, really exciting. So hope you all enjoy. You know, we were in the process of uh, developing that the flow center. Okay. I was telling you about that. Mm-hmm. The, it's the old Baptist church there in Wimberley, and the watershed bought. It's six and a half acres right at the entry of Blue Hole Park. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, 33,000 square feet of buildings, and we've got environmental school there. We've got, uh, you know, a vision to kind of create a performing arts center and art nice. center. And, oh, cool. And this, I could imagine this being an aspect of that whole Definitely. kind of art art for water, you know, program. But um, this is cool. Yeah. This, is, this is like, you know, you guys are kind of pro here. All <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Well, yeah. I did this for a, a living um, before. Oh. So the last two years, I don't know how much you know, but I went to work for a guy named Matt Reisinger. Um, and he's a home builder here in town, but he's also the host of the Build Show. And um, Oh, yeah, you were telling me about yeah. that. And so I went to work yeah. for him to build houses and wound up his producer it's a crazy long story, but yeah. um, I ended up producing a lot of video podcasts for him. And so I kind of just fell into the production world and learned about it. And then when I teamed up with Forrest, I was like, you yeah, know, maybe we should do that here. And so we're doing it for the podcast we started, just like you. We feel like we know a lot of random, interesting people we yeah. want to talk to. And then also um, we're going to start creating a lot of content for our businesses because, mm-hmm. you know, there's also a roofing and a pool company. Right. And so we're going to do all sorts of educational content, you that's know, use nice. this as a backdrop, put a whiteboard on here and break down things. Oh, and that's awesome. So before we even Very show up good. to a client's house, we're going to send them, here's what to expect and kind of sell the job before we even show up really. Love that. <laughs> Love that. Yeah. I think if you, if you can paint, you know, paint the picture of, you know, the, the where, you, where you want to go and mm-hmm. how you're going to get there, that makes it, people less less stressed out you know because oh, we know it customers love when they get pre-educated on what we're about to go over and when it's in person sometimes they get overwhelmed so we're trying yeah. to get a lot of the information about who we are and how we operate and why we're different to them before we show up that's uh, awesome try to save everyone some time and be crystal clear on what we're offering you guys that that's so smart yeah good deal thank you well thank you for coming on today appreciate yeah. you coming to stop by thank you thanks for having me this is a uh, it's a real treat to we, we had such great connection when we we met and and just all the great things you're doing with uh, 
you know, with your your Instagram site yeah, and uh, and then the West Cave. Uh, he had the uh, the um, daunting task of having to lead the paddles up. <laughs> That's such a such yeah. a tough thing, but what a great yeah. cause that is. Yeah, it was it was fun, you know. And so we we got up there. I think I showed you the video for us for West Cave at our event. I got up there. Oh, and, yeah try to raise a little money and so that was the first time probably the biggest group of people i've spoken in front of before and it wasn't anything crazy you know but it was fun i had a good time with it you did great yeah well, you, you couldn't you wouldn't have nobody knew that you yeah know? You, you you were you seemed like a pro well yeah. thank you i appreciate it um i'd love to just maybe kick us off with um maybe just a high level who you are what you're up to these days um and then i want to pick your brain on some jacob's well topics <laughs> yeah yeah gladly um well, I'm David Baker. I'm, I'm, uh, I actually grew up in the Midwest in Kansas City. Um, was, you know, really, my, I was lucky my uh, father was, uh, you know, big fisherman, hunter, uh, outdoorsman, took us, you know, on float trips almost every weekend in the summer. We'd oh, wow. go on those beautiful rivers in southern Missouri and, and northern Arkansas and and Lake of the Ozarks, and so, you know, we had a lot of outdoor experience as, as you know, as a young person, and you know, played sports, of course, football, and went to the University of Missouri on football scholarship. Nice. What position did you play? I was tailback. Okay. And uh, was recruited by you know almost fifty colleges. I was wow. kind of like, I was kind of a big deal, but you I won't know. challenge you to do a foot race then. <laughs> no, not now. <laughs> I, I couldn't run forty yards and like. 10 minutes, I think. But, but back then, uh, that was a b big part of my life. And then, uh, you know, I studied journalism and then got injured and ended up going to uh, uh, the Kansas City Art Institute. And that's where I kind of shifted to focus. You said on Art Institute? Art Institute. Okay, yeah. yeah. So I focused on, on art and making art. And that I kind of made a career of that. And at that time, what type of art was it? Like oil painting or what were you doing? Yeah, you know, I was doing, um, Mainly, I would do, uh, you know, acrylic painting, uh, but I really got into woodwork and made furniture, and um, and then... That's my kind of art. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, you know, and I did some design work. I really love architecture, and um, so I moved... I was able to move down to Texas in 1988, and um, I was actually doing set design for a production company in Austin, and uh, the first trip I came down here, um, you know, I was like, ah, I don't, I don't know, you know, it's, it's, it's this is a good gig. But they took me to Austin, of course. That was amazing to see Austin. And then they took me out to Kerrville to uh, the folk festival, and went to the Medina River. Oh wow! And when I saw that that river and the cypress trees and just the that you know the clear water i was like wow this is a special place and um at that time i was living in santa cruz california up on a you know a mountaintop and in, in the redwood forest and and I, I thought i'd never leave there you know i thought that hard spot to leave that was yeah. a, i was like wow this is this is amazing my son jacob was born there how old were you at this point i was about 29 okay yeah 28 and uh and then, uh, uh, you know, got invited down to Texas, and and I was so moved. I'm like, we we need to we need to move down here. And they offered me this longer uh, job. 
at that time, we, we'd also been looking at Taos, New Mexico. We love that. One love of my Taos. favorite places. Oh, Northern yeah. New Mexico to me is, I just, I love it up there. It's just, there's something magical about that landscape. And as an artist, you know, that mm -hmm. was a really good place. But then some friends said, oh, why don't you go out to, uh, go out to Wimberley? Because we were looking for a house, South Austin area. And, and you know, I pulled down, or drove down 12 and I saw those hills and I was like, mm, this is it. This is this the spot. Is the spot yeah. And so I... I actually rented a storage locker. I was like, "Man, this, this is a place." And and uh, I'm I'm I'd I'd hired a real estate person to kind of look for just a rental or something. We weren't really ready to buy. And I'm sitting there looking at the truck, going, "Oh man, how am I going to unload all this stuff? I got to go hire somebody <laughs> to help me." She pulls up and she's like, "David, I think you found your place, a little stone house at Jacob's Well." And I'm like, "What's Jacob's Well?" And I was thinking like, oh, well, you know, and she's like, you better get out there because locals find out it'll be gone. And went out there and saw the uh, house, there are two houses, walked down that hill and, and down the steps to the well. And before I even got to the well, the hair on my arm stood up and I was like, oh, this. And I walked around that corner. I'm like. Oh my God! This is the spot. <laughs> this is the place. So it's for sale. So you were able to buy that property. Well, at that time it was just for lease. Okay. One, the one little house was for lease, and uh, and so you know we we moved in there, and still thinking we might go to Taos, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, my son, if uh, he was nine months old, his name was Jacob. Sort of like Jacob's well. It's meant to right. be. It's perfect. Yeah. So, so that was pretty cool. And for the artist to be at the well, it was just I was so inspired. I, I, one of my, I think one of the best paintings I ever painted was was that first week that I moved there. I was just so moved by, you know, how magnificent the well was and just what a sacred place it was. And and so about I don't know it was maybe six months, eight months later. Um, I think we had a year lease. I met the rancher that owned it. And I said, uh, you know, thanks for renting it. It's this place. It's so nice. You know, my son's name's Jacob. And uh, he's like, well, if you like it that much, why don't you make me an offer? And I'm like, you'd sell the well? And he, he's like, yeah, it's just, you know, all, lots of trespassers and kids drinking beer there. And, you know, just had a whole story about how challenging it was to manage it at that time did he own all three all sides or what how he had it? two of the pies of okay. the four pies because okay. it was divided into four four different pieces so there was the rv park there was the old swim and tennis center and so that he used to lease you know access to the big wood creek north development through that that one parcel and so he he'd cut that off and built a fence but everybody cut the fence and mm -hmm. come in and um, back then, it was pretty, you know, pretty quiet. The locals would come and, you know, swim and jump in. But then, you know, they, they'd just come down to cool off. It wasn't like, you know, people were hanging out there all day. So I, it was my, my policy was like, look, just leave it cleaner than you found it. Be respectful that other people want to come. And, and the locals pretty much did that, mm -hmm. you know. But we ended up you know, being able to buy about 25 acres and half of the well, and we opened a little bed and breakfast. And so that was the beginning of uh, Dancing Waters Inn. I think it was the third B&B &B in, in Wimberley. What year was that? It was probably like 1989, 90. Okay. And, uh, and so that's, that's how it started. And, 
then about the mid nineties, um, you know, I'd gotten involved in the community. We were trying to incorporate Wimberley and gotten on a committee that was looking at water and, and, uh, you know, we, we sort of decided, you know, we need, we need an organization to work on, um, trying to do land conservation, be a land trust, do science and research. No one was monitoring flow or water quality and, uh, and somebody to educate the community and, 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 and work on policies. And so we formed the uh, Wimberley Valley Watershed Association in 1996. And, um, of course, you know, immediately got into a fight with Aqua. Back then it was Aqua Source bought the utility uh, and wanted to discharge right in the creek. And so, you know, a lot of this work is about has been about reacting to the threats, the things that are coming at us. And in the last decade or so, we've really tried to pivot more to, you know, what we're for as opposed to what we're against. Mm -hmm. And uh, we still have those fights. We still have things that, that we, we don't, you know, want to see happen. Um, and we've actually formed uh, separate organizations to work on those issues. But, um, you know, it's the fastest growing county in the United States. Everybody wants to come to the Hill Country. But we have a finite amount of water, um, finite amount of, of open space and land. And so um, land conservation has really been at the center of our mission, protecting land to protect water, protect habitat, and to provide, um, you know, open space and parkland for public access on some of those lands. Absolutely. That's amazing. And so from 96, when you formed that organization um, with the group of folks to look after that, how has that evolved over the years? I mean, as of today, you know, I guess at that time, the organization on the property you had was still half of the well. As of today, you know, is it how is it set up today? Do you own the whole property or, or how does that look, you know, from 96 on? Yeah. Yeah, we we uh, ended up in 2005, uh, the watershed bought bought out our interest. Uh, my partner and I bought out uh, the old RV park and the swim center. And so that put together about 46 acres, which was the first time we think since the 1860s that that have all been in one holding. Wow. And about in that same year, there was a developer that was proposing to put in uh, 65 condos and a hotel right above that. Oh, we, we were able to buy him out. And so that expanded it to um, about 98 acres. And, um, and at that time, the county, you know, we, we in 2003 passed a small bond, $3.5 million for parks and open space. 2007, we passed a bond for uh, $30 million. And so what we, what we ended up doing was, um, you know, working with the county to pay down that debt. And then we ultimately deeded over about 88 acres and 100% of the well to Hayes County. Wow. So that became the Jacobsville natural area. And uh, since that time, we've added, we now have almost 500 acres protected around Jacobs Well, um, the uh, old Coleman's Ranch, which has uh, got the Wimberley Bat Cave. And there's a track that has 118 karst features on it. It's just warbler habitat. It's an incredible piece of land. We're actually calling that Karst Canyon Preserve now. So is that going to be open to the public at some time? Yeah. Oh, wow, yeah. how cool. We're, we're in the final uh, phase of, of transferring that to Hayes County, 
and uh, Nature Conservancy holds a conservation easement on it, so it's it's protected in terms of, you know, the county can't, you know, overdevelop that and has to keep it in really a, a natural state and as a and really as a preserve a natural area. I love hearing when there's new parks and I guess for me in conservation, my <laughs> spots that really jump out to me is, you know, water because I think that's a huge issue we face. And then also um, anything that gets private land public to me is huge with yeah. so much of Texas being private and so many folks wanting to get outdoors anything like that to me just makes me excited and happy to hear about new parks. And so with there being over a hundred or 150, what you said, cars features, I know those areas are very sensitive. Um, So what is access like going to be? It might be too soon to say, so I mean, tell me that too, but I mean, what type of access will folks have to that property or free reign air quotes, you know, that they could do? Yeah, there'd be a trail system Mm -hmm. that, you know, we encourage people to stay on those trails and uh, there'll be a lot of interpretive, you know, uh, signage and and but it, it'll essentially be a natural area, not uh, you know basically a, a trail, n- not a lot of infrastructure there. There you know there is a plan uh, in the in the uh, parks plan to put ultimately put a kind of nature research center as part of the natural area to be down closer to the well. You know we have you know over you know hundred thousand visitors that come there each year. Uh, about thirty thousand that come to swim, sixty thousand at Blue Hole, so it's it's become you know a huge attractor for our kind of ecotourism. We estimate somewhere between you know seventy five to one hundred million in in revenue from overnight lodging and 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 the impacts of, of those visitors over thirty different countries. So it's it's become an attractor not just to Texas and the U.S., but people from all over the world that want to come and see that that um, that spring. Absolutely, I mean Jacob's Well is just absolutely amazing. I really encourage folks, you know, to go and see if they haven't. I mean, unfortunately, now I don't know if the rain, if it's, I know it, the springs have gone dry. I don't know if they're back trickling at all. I think I maybe saw a post there. There was a little bit of water, but before we jump into that, because I'd love to kind of get to today's viewpoint of the springs, but would you just break down what is Jacob's Well? I mean, for folks that have no idea even what we're talking about, can you give us the, the yeah. Jacob's Well pitch? Yeah. I mean, Jacob's Well, is a it's an artesian spring, which means that the water is under pressure and is forced up from about 140 feet deep in the aquifer. And the cavern, it's the second longest underwater cave in Texas. Uh, I think Phantom Cave out in West Texas is a little longer but this is over 7,500 feet have been mapped by cave divers. Um, the main channel goes back about 5,500 feet, so over a mile back in the aquifer. Um, and um, it it's provides the base flow for Cypress Creek. That's the little creek that runs through Wimberley and then goes to Blue Hole uh, uh, Regional Park there. And then it, it goes into the confluence of the Blanco River. So when it's flowing, you know, at normal conditions, it'll it'll provide anywhere from eight to ten percent of the base flow to the Blanco River. And one kind of neat uh, thing we discovered is that, you know, that water flows downstream down the Blanco, and it drops in the Edwards Aquifer, in because about eighty percent of the recharge happens in these stream bottoms. You know, it goes, oh, it goes back into the aquifer through through you know cracks and fissures in the in the creeks. And rivers, and so it goes in in uh, there just past, just outside of Kyle, and uh, 
and then that, that water normally comes out of San Marcos Springs. You know, some of it goes on down, you know, through the through the main course to the San Marcos River. But during times of drought, that water goes all the way to Barton Springs. So you could swim in Jacob's Well in the morning, and maybe the next day you'd be swimming in the same water in Barton Springs. Oh, interesting. So that's that's how it's all interconnected, right? And and then that water makes its way all the way down to, to the estuaries and, you know, keeps the bays uh, healthy and, and those, those ecosystems there. So these systems are so important, you know, to understand how all that's interconnected. It's so easy to think that, you know, Jacob's Well is isolated. You look at it dry there and, oh, you don't think about it impacting Barton Springs of all places. I would have right. never made that connection. Well, yeah, in the hill country in general, you know, we've got the Trinity Aquifer there and the Edwards, which are different systems. But, you know, 100 percent of, you know, you know, the drinking water for the city of San Antonio is coming out of these hill country watersheds. So protecting this upstream, these headwaters for not only for Barton Springs, San Marcos, Comal and the drinking water of San Antonio is really, really important. And the cities have done a good job, I think, both San Antonio and Austin of, of starting to protect the recharge zone. But I think more investment out in the in the contributing zone where where these the, the, where the first raindrops fall is really important. Is your group actively trying to expand to get as much of that land as possible when and if it comes available? Yeah, it, it, I mean, land land conservation is is central to our mission. There's a lot of great uh, land trusts that are working in the hill country. Uh, Texas Land Conservancy, Hill Country Conservancy, TNC. Um, recently, the Hill Country Land Trust, which I was part of form of the founding board, just merged with Texas Land Conservancy. And so um, all those groups are working, you know, to try to, you know, primarily work on private land conservation. But I think uh, now, you know, we, we, we are, you know, as you said, with the most recent bond issue in Hayes County, it was $75 million in 2020. Um, one of the great acquisitions we've done there is, or the county's done, is um, the, the, boy, the old Boy Scout camp. Um, it's called now called Sentinel Peak Preserve. And, and so the county has 500 acres on the, both sides of the Blanco River, a beautiful long stretch there that'll be open to the public hopefully in the next year or so. But What was it previously called? Um, it was, um, what, what, what was it? Um, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the original Boy Scout camp. It'll come to me, but, um, I was in troop five here in Austin in an Eagle Scout. So I was curious ah, if I recognized okay. the previous name, if we went on a camp out there or anything. I bet, I bet you did. Um, um, I don't know why I can't think of it right now, but, uh, um, yeah. And I think, I think with the passing of, of prop 14 billion dollars for new parks in Texas, Passed by almost seventy-five percent. That's an incredible uh, opportunity, you know, to you know acquire more lands. And but the big challenge we have, you know, in these areas that are close to the I thirty-five corridor, is that the land's already been very fragmented. In Hayes County, ninety-one percent of the parcels are ten acres or less already. So it, there's been a lot of subdividing, you know. So you know these large, you know, the part I think. Texas Parks and Wildlife would like to see, you know, 5,000-acre parks, larger uh, parks that are that are part of this new initiative. Uh, so that's going to be a challenge, I think. We might have to go a little further west to, to be able to do that. 
But, uh, you know, what we've been focused on is really, you know, we've put together almost 100, just that first acquisition was 160 parcels that were subdivided back together. So we're, we're really, you know, knitting back together, you know, property that had already been subdivided. Wow. It's, I'm, I remember when I was down there with you um, touring the property and you went on this app that you had that showed all the different parcels and, you know, landowner information and all that, and you zoom out at those developments that are, you know, really coming in, encroaching on the well and the watershed or in the watershed. And it is just mind-boggling when you see from an overhead view all the different parcels and just how packed in there folks are and how much water that is. It, it's, it's just shocking when you see it from that perspective. Right. Yeah, that particular subdivision, the Wood Creek North, was platted back in 1972, kind of before there was all the awareness and knowledge about, oh, shoot. No <laughs> oh, worries. Shoot, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> You're fine. About the, uh, about the limitations of, uh, of groundwater. And, um, you know, there's 3,600 platted lots, 1,300 homes there now. They're adding 50 or 60 a year. And so it's this, you know, each each house is 150,000 less that's going to be coming out, gallons that's going to be coming out of the aquifer. And one thing interesting. I'm uh, sorry, here, break, break that down. You said 150 gallons. 150,000 gallons. Is that? That's just an estimate if you use kind of Water Development Board's numbers of okay. what an average home would use annually. 150,000 gallons? For a household? Yeah. Wow. It's, it's about a half an acre foot, uh, but... You know, it, I think, you know, during, when we get in these drought times, you know, we have these curtailments that are we're supposed to cut back. But that's what, you know, in this last drought or last year and this year, too, that aqua system, it, it, they, they didn't send out notices. They didn't notify people. So people just kept using. And they're using somewhere between 8,500 to 10,500 uh, a month per house. But that number should have been closer to 4,000 to stay within the curtailment. So about 120 to 130 a day. Um, and the, the key there is just really to not do outdoor watering. That's 60% of the water. Is irrigation, landscaping, yeah. all of that? Yeah. So, so it's, you know, we have about 6,000 wells in western Hayes County. And... You know, ninety-eight percent of the wells are exempt wells, so they don't—they aren't regulated. Um, those are individual homeowners. But the big uh, utilities, there's about thirty-three aqua, you know, Wimberley Water Supply, Dripping Springs. They are regulated by the the local groundwater conservation district, so they can set limits on what they pump. And my understanding there, though, I mean, with aqua, I guess it's aqua Texas. They've had a lot of bad press recently with. Um, you know, over pumping, and they're the ones in the area there that directly affected Jacob's well. It sounds like, um, correct me where I'm wrong here, but they were supposed to pump a certain amount and re were regulated for a certain amount, and ended up pumping close to double that. And so that's what scares me: is you yeah. can have these regulations, you can have these things in place, and and fight all you want up front on development standards, but they don't have any regulation. I mean, there's no way to enforce it on them. And then my understanding with the with the uh, watershed districts is they have no teeth. Yeah. They can put a fine on the company, but if the company doesn't pay the fine, there's no repercussion. So, yeah. how do you? I mean, how do you stop a company for like yeah. that from overpumping? And then you hear they're not sending out notices to people. It's like, yeah. holy cow, yeah, what is right. going on here? I, I think yeah. that's you, you hit the head of the nail. It, it's just like we 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 really need the state needs to do something about these utilities. I would call them rogue utilities that aren't following their drought contingency plans 
or aren't following the local groundwater conservation district rules. Um, that, you know, that's the bottom, that's the low bar. To right? me, that's criminal. I mean, yeah. what, what companies do, if they knowingly go and over pump on a water source they know is sensitive like it is here, I mean, to me, that's criminal. I would, I wish there was criminal charges pressed <laughs> on that. I mean, I, I'm dead serious. Yeah. I think that's yeah. absolutely yeah. insane that any sort of company at all can get away with this. It's just wild to me. Well, when you're losing 30 to 40% in your line loss, you're just leaking it out. And and think of it like this. The oh, wait, but they have statistics saying 30 to 40% of that water they pumped is, leaked. is leaks? N- nearly nearly 40,000 uh, oh or 40 million gallons was, was leak water. That makes and, my blood boil. Yeah, <laughs> oh I know. As, I know. as a builder, I, too, I know how, like, I, I fix leaks, you know? Yeah. So that just makes me very it, frustrated. It, it, it's very frustrating. <laughs> and, and, you know, in thinking about the, the dynamics of the aquifer, think of this water pressurized, right? It's, it's, it's under pressure 100, you know, 130, 40 feet down. But they're kind of in, intercepting that. So they're lowering, you know, that water is very flat. It's the, the heads are very flat behind the faults there. And that's, that's why Jacob's Well there is there's big faults. And then Jacob's Well is kind of the release valve. But we've, we've in, our, in our research, we've seen that even six inches of change in water level can stop the spring from flowing. And, and it needs that pressure. I yeah. See. So if you're, if you're pumping 300 gallons a minute and you're lowering that head, then, then you get the head gets equal with the with the spring mouth, so there's no more flow. And one one fact I, I figured I was researching this on a recent article San Antonio Express News did on the difference between the Trinity Aquifer and the Edwards, because the Edwards is kind of like a bathtub, right? Water will because it's 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 older rock, so it's it's very porous, big big conduits, and water will you know, just pour into it and fill up. And and in the, and there's zones like that above Jacobs Well and Pleasant Valley Springs that act like many kind of Edwards, but a, sign, a hydrologist told me one time said you know there's places in the Edwards water can move five miles underground in one day, but wow. there's places in the Trinity say up you know west of Dripping Springs where water might move five inches in a year, so so it's very different dynamics. The surface looks the same, but what's going on underground is very different. So and I had heard. Um, that the sorry here I didn't no, no, your train no. of thought that with the Edwards aquifer you know I have heard similar you know it fills up quickly we could actually have a lot of heavy flooding and it could fill our aquifer I've heard with the Trinity which sounds like I'm understood somewhat correctly that um, if we were to stop all usage out of the Trinity aquifer today it would take over 200 years to refill. Um, I guess my understanding is that water percolates into that. It takes much more time. The rock that the water is sitting in is much more dense. And so it's really hard to penetrate that, and you need long-term saturation to trickle into that, unlike Edwards that we think is, you know, a giant underground cave more or less that just fills up. And to me, am I accurate in thinking like that? It is somewhat like that. I think there's there's parts of the Trinity that, like, above Jacob's Well that have all these karst features Mm -hmm. where – Recharge might be twenty-five to thirty percent. Normally, across the region, we get three to five percent of of recharge. So, when it rains, only three to five percent is actually recharging, and that has to be you know the right conditions. Like I say, eighty percent of that recharge is happening in the creeks themselves. Um, so it's it's a complex system. But the 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 thing that that I you know learned was that. You know, in order for San Marcos Springs and Comal Springs to flow, 
in Barton Springs, we have to keep about 95% of the water that's in the aquifer there to keep it pressurized enough to push that water out to form those rivers. And so that same principle uh, works in the Trinity, but the Edwards has a cap on pumping. And, and they, that cap is there because the Edwards Aquifer Authority was formed because of endangered species in San Marcos and Comal Springs uh, required them to keep those base flows, uh, so they had to set a cap on pumping. And San Anto- City of San Antonio and Saws is the biggest you know user of that water. But in the Trinity, we don't, and really every other groundwater district, we don't have a cap on pumping. We don't have a way to... Uh, uh, say, all right, we've we've taken enough, and you know the districts are there to try to regulate that with these drought contingencies, and we even formed the Jacobs Well Management Zone, which set certain uh, parameters, which were tying the curtailments to the spring flow itself. So when we, as the spring flow lowers, you have to curtail more and more, and that's what Aqua sort of ignored, and that's sort of why we're in the situation with I think with the well not flowing plus the drought you mm-hmm. know so it's a combination of like a bank account that you're withdrawing more than you're depositing and you keep spending mm-hmm. you know is canyon lake attached to any of these aquifers um being it, downstream it, of them you know canyon lake is in the guadalupe basin um it it is uh, you know it's it's being fed by groundwater out of the the guadalupe river so okay. it, it's it's a similar groundwater fed system um, but hydrologically not probably connected to Jacob's Well and, um, and possibly some influence certainly on the Blanco River. And we think probably 15% of the, the recharge to Jacob's Well is coming from the Blanco, um, the Blanco zone. But, uh, you know, it's, you, you see these areas too around the city of, of, Blanco, where we've lost 100 feet of groundwater level over the last, you know, 30 years. And on average, I think we're losing two to three feet of water level across the whole region um, from just mining these aquifers, pumping more out. more development. Yeah, just pumping out more than, than we're recharging. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, it's not a sustainable policy that we have. And the 30-foot drawdown as a policy, um, that's essentially doubled the amount of water these districts can can hand out. Could you break that down on what that means exactly? So yeah, this, this, this is very, you know, the state has a process called the Desired Future Conditions process. It was started in, I think, 2005. And what that was meant to be is a ground-up uh, groundwater planning process. So do, what do we desire the future condition of our aquifer to be? And that can be a... Uh, a statement of drawdown. It could be a percentage of the saturated thickness. It could be even be a spring flow. Uh, but you, but the stakeholders come up with a you know a, a way to quantify that. And pretty much when that first came out, the the most of the people, ninety five percent of the people said, we don't want to draw down the aquifers any. We want them to stay like they are forever. And the, the districts are like, wow, we got this huge population projections here. We can't do that. That's not reasonable. Well, how much population are we going to have? And they, the board, Water Development Board gave a number. Well, how much drawdown we have to you know, use to meet that demand? Well, 30 feet. 
well, that would give us enough water for this 2050 population. And by drawdown 30 foot, we're just saying that the aquifer would be 30 feet lower than it is now? On average. On average, And, okay. and so each state, each county kind of has its own number. I mean, Hayes County, I think it was 19. But the point was is that that allowed uh, this managed available groundwater number, which is a, really now they're calling modeled available groundwater, that became kind of their permitting, you know, not really a cap, more of a goal, and so, it, but it doubled what we originally had as a as a sustainable, you know, kind of, kind of trying to to manage ninety percent of what the drought of record would would have would have been. So, you know, with a place like Jacobs Well, you know, doubling the amount of pumping in an area that we've already you know drawn down, you know, considerably, is just completely unsustainable policy. Mm-hmm. So. I think, you know, that, that, and that process goes every five years as a chance to re-evaluate those. And, and um, so there is a chance for the public to give input. But, you know, the boards just sort of somewhat ignore that input, and, and they, they made a decision based on what the demand was going to be in the future. So um, it's a lot of acronyms in that world. Mm-hmm. Everybody's like, gosh, how am I, you know, don't, don't, don't kill me with DFCs and mags and GMAs. You know, there's just a lot of uh, uh, complicated things there. But it, it, I, I think the simple way to think of it is, is we're taking out more than is going in. And, and, and really to manage it sustainably, we've got to, we've got to try to balance that. And, you know, we, and that's what we've been working on, right? I mean, one water, using rainwater collection, AC condensate, being more innovative with, with our water use and our water sources um, is, is really going to be an important strategy for adding another 4 million people to this region in the next, you know, 27 years. Yeah, the future of water in Texas is is definitely a scary one right now. And um, I have people that occasionally, as soon as I bring it up, you know, a lot of people ask, well, what can I do? What is there can, that can we do to help? And um, to me, there's no really easy answer. I think the lowest hanging fruit that I see is irrigation. I mean, that's 60% of our usage. I mean, that hit me this last summer. I had kind of an epiphany. Um, you know, I walked out my front yard, all my grass is dead, obviously yellow. I wasn't watering it. But I get get out to my curb where there's that little strip by the street, and it's, I just have weeds there. Yeah. They were thriving, all green, <laughs> looked beautiful, weeds sitting there, and it, and it just hit me all of a sudden, you know, native versus non-native. Yeah. It was such a stark difference on what was thriving and what, what wasn't. And, you know, as a home builder, we get into these heavy HOA neighborhoods and build, you know, a five, six, seven, eight thousand square foot home, and they require you to have grass that's watered x number of times a week they require you to have all these plants and so it's crazy to me that you go drive through barton creek or really anywhere in west austin through these heavy hoa neighborhoods and they basically require homeowners to have bad water usage practices and that's crazy to me why is you know i guess like the whole zero scape you know idea it just doesn't seem like it's really taking us like how do we make that cool i mean maybe i might need a new name you know the zero (laughs) rebrand it but it's seriously that to me is the lowest hanging fruit and something that every single one of us has a hand in. I mean, yeah. unless you live in an apartment or something, but if you have a home, you are part, you know, watering your yard is a direct issue here. And it sounds like 60%. And so for me, anyone listening, 
you know, something to do. Like, yes, you can conserve water, try to shower less. That, but, I mean, quit watering your yard is probably the biggest thing you can <laughs> yeah. do, you know, and change your plants. And so yeah. if you have the ability to do that or live in a neighborhood, you can. I highly stress, you know, trying to do that. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a great point. I think that's the the low-hanging fruit. That's half of the half of the water use generally or more. You know, I think, the, the you know, pivoting to what we're for in, in the 2019, we – worked with the Wimberley ISD uh, Independent School District to build what we call the first one water school in Texas. And one water being water at every point in the water cycle, whether it's rainwater, gray water, wastewater, uh, uh, storm water, all of it has value. And so it used to be thought of as kind of integrated water, water resource management. So we approached the school district and said, look, we can we can help you design the school to be, um, you know, a model for water use. Uh, teach the teach the students, uh, you know, this et- this conservation ethic, and so they uh, we you know put together a team, uh, raise some money for the engineering, and this school collects rainwater harvesting, eighty thousand square foot building, nine hundred students, uh, also AC condensate. We collect in the summers between 600 to 1,000 gallons of AC condensate off this building. And that's good clean water, too. It's just, it's <laughs> yeah. just like distilled water. Mm-hmm. And we, uh, you know, treated treat it all, but um, we flushed the toilets with that. Mm-hmm. If you didn't go 100%, you know, on rainwater, it's still using groundwater for drinking water and for the kitchen. Uh, but then we treat it on site. And then that is, is used for irrigation for the for the soccer play field and the landscape, and then green stormwater infrastructure to mitigate the, the runoff. And that school was modeled to use 90% less water than a normal wow. school. Is it built and finished? Built, finished. Uh, I brought you the case study on it. Very cool. And... Um, but the, then the other good news on it is that it's going to save the school district a million dollars in water and sewer rates over the next 20 to 25 years. Wow. So we've got won all kinds of awards. The Water Development Board has recognized that lots of schools are coming saying, hey, how do we do this? Um, because, it, and it's really a neat, there's a neat video on our website that has the, the students from the school explaining the different parts of the infrastructure. I think we should have second graders explain everything to us because <laughs> yeah. it's just so, it's so great uh, how they understand these concepts and and we got you know pervious pavers and a lot of uh, you know, and and we got in kind of late on the design process so we I think my message to the listeners would be try to get in earlier and 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 work with the the school district to show these not only the benefits financially. Because it costs about the same as the as the con- uh, traditional infrastructure to put in, um, uh, you know, going with Aqua, it would have been the same amount of money cost up front, but um, the savings is huge, and then the savings to the aquifer. We're not drawing down that aquifer, and this school sits in between Blue Hole and Jacobs Well, so it's called Blue Hole Elementary, and um, and so it's been a that that I think is the model. That we'd like to take to the to the residential scale, to the subdivision scale, and that those that purple pipe or that reuse water, that's what's watering the outside space, not not fresh drinking water or, or aquifer water, and that transformation, I think, in terms of a paradigm for water management, is really 
and we're going to have to do that if we're going to add, you know, another projected four million to this region, and you know, by twenty fifty. Absolutely. I just I don't know. It's, we're not going to invent more water, you know. And the strategy now is to go take it, you know, from the Creso Wilcox and and pump it back to the west from you know these eastern counties, but. That that water is not infinite either. There's vast amounts out there, but um, where uh, is that region? Um, so if you just if you go east of I-35, mm-hmm. there's an aquifer there as you go into the coastal plains called the Carrizo Wilcox. Okay, and um, that that is a sand aquifer, so it's 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 got pretty large amounts of water in it. But uh, you know it also affects the Colorado River. Um, you know recently. Well, about three years ago, uh, San Antonio built the Vista Ridge Pipeline. So they went to Lee County, drilled wells, and they built a 178-mile pipeline back to San Antonio. It's a $3 billion project. But in the first year of pumping, you know, (laughs) well owners around that area, their wells dried up. They're having to lower their wells. And I don't know how sustainable that is long term to, to, you know, but there are lots of projects to bring water from that that region back to the hill country. But with that, you know, comes extreme expense, much denser, more development over you know sensitive areas, um, much higher water rates. There's there's a lot to be considered there. And then, what about those communities we're taking that water from? Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking about those ranchers that are you know running a thousand, two thousand head of cattle and have their wells. I mean, are they, who's paying to load to fix their wells when those go dry? You know, that's, that's, there's no easy answer. Um, when you mentioned that other aquifer and you said it was a sand aquifer, um, I haven't heard that term before. Is that so? Instead of here, we have you know limestone that's porous. Is it just tons of sand underground that yeah, water is going it's through? It's more sediment, sediment, uh, and not not as much you know rock and karst like we have in the hill country. So, you know, I thirty five is generally on the Balcones fault zone. So that's that's kind of where the hill country starts and where this uplift. Uh, you know, uh, where we have this car, these car systems is, and then the coastal plains, you know, has, has a different, um, a different geology and, and hydrogeology there. So, uh, those, those water doesn't move as fast through those. It doesn't recharge as rapidly. Um, and, you know, in the hill country, we have essentially three aquifers. We've got the, the upper Trinity, the middle, and then the lower Trinity. And that lower Trinity is not, you know, it's but water is probably thirty thousand years old. It's been there since the ice age. The middle Trinity does recharge more rapidly, and but the upper Trinity, a lot of it's been depleted. So, um, but and that's the other thing about having this DFC that's for three aquifers that have different characteristics. That's really not manageable or sustainable. Could you? What's the DFC? We go with acronyms. the desired future condition. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that that that's a. You know that 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 we could probably do three podcasts just on that. You know wow. the, what? Why that's a, you know, and I think I think in principle it's a it's a inspired idea. Let's let's ask the communities what they want their aquifer to look like in the future. But if we don't listen to what the communities say and we we adopt policies that are counter to that, um, I think we we continue to to mine these aquifers and. I just don't think that should be the policy. I think we should be required to have sustainable 
you know, Arizona Pat just passed a law that said you have to have a hundred year water plan for your subdivision if it comes in. Um, I don't know if we could do that. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know how we do that without a lot more um, thoughtful planning. It's exciting to see the the one water school work. You know, and I'm curious. You know, with Aqua Texas, they you know, had a certain number they said they were going to do and as far as pumping and didn't meet it. So playing devil's advocate with you, you know, we, we were you were saying 90% less water. Did that hold true? I mean, is it, is it working as planned? In our study it, this first year, because it was, we had, we were in years of drought, mm-hmm. we had between 50 to 75% savings. Okay. But we had about a 50% savings on cost compared to a, a Jacobsville Elementary, which is using aqua water. So it is saving on the costs and it is saving on the water. Um, but we've been in these, you know, we've been 16 inches less mm-hmm. rainfall. So, so there's makeup water that comes in if, if we don't get the rainfall. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you think about that AC condensate. Imagine what uh, the Austonian or, or these buildings downtown, how much AC condensate they generate. Absolutely, It's almost like the building becomes a spring, you know, mm-hmm. it's generating this new water. Um, so that that's, I think, where, how we have to start thinking. Where can we, you know, every drop matters really in this equation. How do we do that in a cost-effective way for, um, you know, for the future? And, you know, the city of San Antonio, they'll give people low-flow toilets, low-flow fixtures, because it's, it's, it's less expensive for them to give away those things than go out and find new water, you know, but... It's falling on our roofs, you know. Let's mm-hmm. let's catch it, you know. Absolutely. Earlier, when you were talking about the different technologies in the school, it reminded me of a saying that I've heard from an architect named Steve Basic, um, and he uh, he has this saying about building science principles that you know they have to be integrated, not applied. Uh-huh. And you know, as far as cost savings, and if you are able to integrate these systems, the cost really isn't that much more. But when you go to apply them, it is. And I feel like that's very true with water usage and different things that we have. Is you know, trying to apply them to buildings that may that have already been built, still a great idea, but it can be expensive. But if you're able to integrate them into the design from the start, it makes such a huge difference. And like the school you mentioned, you got in a little late, but being a part of the process as it's being developed makes such a huge difference. Um, and so it's just exciting to hear that yeah. it worked on that school. Yeah, there's a uh, engineer, David Van Heisen, who's been kind of preaching this for 30 plus years, and and he's got a wonderful blog that, and he's he's an incredible designer. He's he's we we've you know done mock-ups for these subdivisions, and I think that's really our next big project is to try to. The county has passed these rules uh, or these guidelines called conservation development guidelines where it would keep 50% of, of a site protected, but it would, would uh, have a scorecard. If you use rainwater, if you use reuse water on site, it gives you points. And if you get up to a certain level, the county would give you um, a PID or, or a, 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 uh, essentially allow you to bond that infrastructure so the developer wouldn't have to put that money out of pocket. And so, and even pay some for the open space. So no one's built one of these yet. We need about seventy-five to eighty-five homes for that to work, um, for you know the bonding. But I think that kind of innovation is where we're going to have to go, where that becomes the rule, not the exception, especially in these water, um, you know, scarce areas like like the hill country. Absolutely, and building new, there's no reason to not integrate these. I mean, it, when we have the opportunity to do it right, we absolutely should. 
Well, as a developer, you know, I mean, if somebody said, hey, uh, if you if you will build it this way, you wouldn't have to put money out of pocket for the infrastructure. That would be assessed in a home fee for the new owners. Would that be of interest to you? I'm interested. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I know some that would be yeah. all about it. Right. So so I think that's the other side of this, right? We need we need the right regulations, but we also need the right incentives. We need the carrots too to say, look, you know, this is this is for the public's good. This is for the good of these resources to do it in this different way. But a lot of the engineering firms are just like, this is how we've always done it. You know, we got we gotta break that that pattern and 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 incentivize this 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 new way and um i think you know that's the big challenge is, is how to shift that paradigm i think it starts with education i think it's awesome that those second graders at that school i think he says the blue holes elementary school uh the fact that they can explain the difference that they're building and draw draw a blank there sorry um <laughs> The building practices that went into that school, are those able to be implemented on current schools and current systems that can adopt it, or does it have to be new construction to implement those building practices? No, I think I think you can retrofit in certain instances. You know, you know that's more expensive sometimes to retrofit, so planning it from the get-go. But there are new schools being built all the Absolutely. time. Um, we even had, you know, the, the folks from Robb Elementary came over from Uvalde because they're going to build a new school there, so... I think we've had eight or ten schools come and visit and walk through. But we, what we need, I think, is kind of like a one-water SWAT team that's like, <laughs> you know, the engineer, the builder, the designer that can, you know, kind of come in and help help to do that. And, you know, we were able to get some philanthropic funds to pay for uh, the, our engineers and our team. We worked with real closely with Meadows Center, uh, Nick Dornack, who's – now at Doucette and Associates. So he's moved over from, you know, Meadows Center for Water and Environment to working in the private sector to advance One Water for, you know, Doucette Engineering. So I think I think it's, we're still in the nascent kind of early stages of that, but, um, you know, Mitchell Foundation, you know, Hill Country Alliance, there's a lot of groups uh, that are really uh, pushing this. And Hill Country Alliance had this great... Uh, a workshop uh, about a month ago down in Bernie where they brought in, I think it was 60 or 60 or so elected officials and did a day long kind of seminar with, with different um, uh, engineers and, and practitioners talking about how to implement one water and, and a resolution that their councils could adopt to uh, say, you know, we want to work on this in the future as a, as a policy. Very interesting. That's wonderful. Um, as you, you were talking about Hill Country Alliance or mentioned them, I, could you explain what a conservation easement is? You know, I feel like I have a pretty good understanding, but I don't, I, you know, that, that term gets thrown around a lot. There's a lot of, you hear about landowners doing that on their property. Um, but for folks listening, would you mind breaking that down? Yeah, it, it's, it's a great tool. It, you know, it's, it's generally used for a private landowner. Um, and we have about 30, I think 35 or so land trust operating in Texas. So the land trust is a nonprofit organization like the Nature Conservancy or Hill Country Conservancy, which actually holds the, the, the conservation easement and trust. Um, there's a statewide group called the Texas Land Trust Council, and there's some fantastic uh, landowner guides and information about conservation easements there. Uh, but, but essentially, it's an agreement between the landowner and the land trust. 
to protect the conservation values of a given property. So those might be, um, you know, a forest. It might be, you know, a water water feature. It might be, you know, the groundwater. And you think of it like the development rights are like a bag of sticks, right? I, I can subdivide. I can drill a water well. I can, I can, uh, you know, you know, build certain things on the property. As you as you you know, the way it works is that you go well to protect this property and the conservation values. We're going to have to. Uh, make sure it's not subdivided, or we're gonna, or or we are gonna leave, say, four lots for my kids to build houses. But ninety-five percent of the property is gonna stay in conservation, um, you know, purpose. And it could be ag- agricultural purpose too. There's a Texas uh, Ag Land Trust that protects farms, uh, working farms. So whatever those values are, we say we want to protect those. And then you say, all right, I'm gonna restrict these future uses. And then there's a appraisal done of those those uh, development uh, rights intact, if we if, as it is now, and then there's an appraisal done of when we remove those those rights, what it, what that difference is, and the difference becomes um, it, it can be used as a, t- uh, a federal tax deduction, so um, and that can be spread out over many years. Generally, that comes down to around forty to fifty percent of the value of the property. So, in, in essence, you're you know you're, you're restricting the value of it, but uh, you're also getting this tax benefit. And in some cases, there's there's purchasing of those development rights um, in certain situations where those monies are available. Um, programs like the NRCS. Uh, Natural Resource Conservation Service. Um, the, there's federal monies that'll actually buy those rights, and so then they buy those rights not to do anything with it, but just to make sure that they're protected in perpetuity. Yeah. So if I was a landowner, um, just to break it down, if I had you know a thousand acres west of town, um, and I wanted to put it into a conservation easement, then I could go to an organization like the Hill Country Alliance and say, Hey, I have you know a thousand acres that I'd like to protect. I want to keep 50 of those acres for my family and I for potential developments. The rest of it, you know, is going to be undeveloped, but I'd like to be able to, um, you know, ride horses or, you know, you put some legalities on there, what it protects. And then it sounds like the value of what you then owe from a tax point of view would go down. So you'd be saving money on property tax mixed with um, you could actually have some tax balance that we could spread out over the years on that missing revenue portion on the, those rights. So it seems like for a landowner, if you don't want to develop and keep it in the family, why would you not do a conservation yeah. easement? I, I think I think it's a it's a great tool because it's very flexible like that. You can, all right, I'm going to leave this part out of the easement or we're going to create these building envelopes for future future development or, or you know, family housing. We it, Whatever that, whatever you, you retain can't, you know, impact the conservation values of the other so you know drilling a well that's going to dry up the stream on this property wouldn't you know that probably wouldn't qualify so you know it's got to be truly protecting those those conservation values but that the you, you, it was you mentioned hill country alliance it's really hill country conservancy oh, that's right. Hill country yeah, Service, they're, they're, that's right. but hill country alliance certainly promotes the this this method but it's uh but I think the the other advantage for the for the landowner is one, it's flexible tool to be you know custom for their family's needs, but the public benefits because we get 
you know, water quality protection. We get habitat protected. We're sequestering carbon. It's doing what I'd call these ecosystem services in perpetuity. And so that's a long time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> perpetuity is forever. So the land trust responsibility is to monitor that maybe once a year. They come out and make sure that, you know, all those agreements are upheld. And then that stays with the land. If the landowner sells it to the next the next owner, that easement goes with it. So that that has to stay in, in place. And um, and and so it's, you know, I think there's um, you know, nearly a million, maybe it's a million acres that are in conservation easement now. Wow. Um, I really encourage folks to go to Texas Land um, Trust Council's website because they've, they've got, you know, great data on all the, not only the private benefits, but the public benefits. Um, and you mentioned it too, that, you know, 97% of the land in Texas is privately owned. And um, that's going to be, you know, we have a great heritage of, of stewardship and conservation in the state. And I, I think that those private landowners are going to be how we're going to really protect these watersheds and these 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 conservation values. You know, you had uh, Ben on with uh, w the the Deep in the Heart film. When you see that, you see how rich and amazing this this state is. Uh, you know, it it should inspire folks to want to really be part of that solution. How does the conservation easement hold up to the state coming in with eminent domain wanting to build a new road? <laughs> you know, they can be condemned, you know. In some ways, they become targets, too, because it's like, wow, there's nothing there. We're just going to go through Free there. Film. That That is not good, you know. But, uh, yeah, it still can be, you know. I mean, it certainly becomes discouraging to, you know, building a road through a, through a you know, a preserve but it happens, you know, or a pipeline or something like that. So uh, that's it doesn't fully protect you from eminent domain. Um, so uh, but <laughs> we actually have a film that we did on the Permian Highway pipeline uh, fight. So many landowners um, that, you know, got run over by Kinder Morgan and, and that pipeline. And uh, we hope to be releasing that soon. Um you know, we've been doing some impact screenings with it, but you know, this is a property right state. It's about people are like, "This is my land. I can do what I want with it." Uh, but I think with the property right also comes some responsibility too. Absolutely. You know? So we got to balance that. Uh, um, and you know, what we, you know, I think everybody. There's nobody that's going to say, "Oh, I don't want clean water. I don't want clean, uh, fresh flowing streams and, and clean air." But what we have to do to get that sometimes is is maybe a little more than what we you know maybe think it is. I just hate the stigma that's around a lot of different conservation topics where you start talking about water usage, and I think a lot of people quickly start to tune you out and don't and or think it's some hippy dippy you know stuff, and they don't want to hear it. But it affects all of us so so deeply, and you know I think there's just a lot of you know being in construction as a home builder, you know, my entire career in Austin, conservation is not a topic that gets brought up, you know, yeah. and you look at, you know, con contractors love complaining about silt fencing around your job site, but that's such a crucial part of actually managing your job site correctly and the maintenance that goes with them. And it's just completely lost on builders or at least most builders. And it's, um, I hate to see it, you know? And so for me, I like to be in that space and, um, be someone that's speaking up for it because I, I, conservation is cool. I yeah, really think it, it is. is, and I wish it didn't have the stigmas that come with it. But I think 
the only way that you can really fight those is through education and letting people yeah. understand what's really going on. Well, and I think meeting people where they are too. You know, I think, I think having an enemy narrative or a, a catastrophic, you know, uh, mm-hmm. apocalypse narrative that that's not going to inspire people. And ta- and having less than what you have now, that's not inspiring either. We want abundant water for all. We want we want to be able to have access to, to these open spaces. We we want to be able to have healthy communities. Um, so how do we work towards that and 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 you know i i think the key to the success that that i've had that our organization has had is that we get together people from different sectors you know we get the developer and the regulator and the city and the groundwater district all together to have these conversations about where our interests meet how we can you know our shared interest is is really together and how do we negotiate um, something that maybe we don't get everything we want but at least we understand that we're you know our fates are tied together it's it's compromise (laughs) and that's what we have to have you know absolutely it's i i I just i really i really feel like that that we've we've got to do more to listen to one another and meet each other where we we are at because talking above someone or talking like you know more than they do yeah, that's not going to win you any any friends, and and certainly not, um, you know, a solution that's going to be that's going to benefit the, these larger ecosystems. Absolutely. Switching topics slightly, Jacobs Well, you've been out there since the '80s. There's got to be some fun, crazy stories. Who have you shown up walking down the hill, seeing in the well? I mean, I know there's got to be some old Austin stories. You know, some you probably can't share, but are there any that you, uh, yeah. you'd you like to share? Uh, you know, just seeing the joy that it brings to people. I mean, back when, you know, we finally got it all together, I was like, okay, um, let's give it over to the government. What could go wrong? <laughs> and, you know, that's when, you know, we – realized that having the conservation easement was going to make sure that it was stayed in conservation um, management. But, uh, you know, it, it has been a really good thing. The county has done an amazing job, I think, at managing that access. But, you know, before it was county, I, I remember um, one day I see these two guys kind of walking down the, 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 uh, the path, you know, towards our house. And um, they had a a, a, a guy who was a, he was he was a Tibetan monk. He had his monk outfit on, and and uh, it was Jimmy Dale Gilmore and Joe Ely, <laughs> and they had had a this young uh, uh, Tibetan monk with them, and we went down to the well together and sat with him, and he he, you know, told you know told us all you know gave us all this insight, and and we were asking questions, and then I said, well, could you come come and bless the well? And uh, walked down. He stood on the weir there for the longest time, and we were all just, you know, anticipating what he was going to say. And he was probably, you know, twenty in his twenties, young. I can't, I'm blank. I can't remember his his name, but I do remember Joe Ely and Jimmy Dale Gilmore, it's a Texas legends. And uh, then he he just looked up and he said, he said, "You've co- asked me to come and bless the well." But it is, it is the well that has blessed me. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's a monk, what a monk <laughs> yeah. would say. But that that was pretty cool. And, yeah. uh, 
but we've had so many, so many things. I mean, christenings. My, my children were christened there. Lots of, lots of, you know, christenings. We've had weddings. We've had, you know, people spread the ashes of their loved ones. Um, um, you know, and just the kids jumping off that rock. You know, it's such a trust a tradition. And I remember when the county was taking it over. Oh, we can't let kids jump off that rock. And we're like. That's kind of the only thing there is to do there at the well. <laughs> That's the point of this place. <laughs> and they they went, it, you know. And I remember even the 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 constable and others got up and said, you know, you can you you can't take that away. That's we you got to let people do that. And and just you know, the 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 young kid that jumps off that rock into that well, um, you know, there's just so many memories there. It's just I think of my kids, you know, swimming there every day when they were they were young and and. Uh, you know, there's it, just a lot of stories. Probably um, just, you know, I think people come there because it's a healing place, too. You know, I think they those waters are, are powerful. And even, even without the flow, you can still feel there's something special there. But when that water is flowing, it's crystal clear, it's bubbling up, and you jump in those ice-cold waters and it's 102 out... There's just nothing like that. Can't you know? beat it. You can't beat it. It's just, it's the best thing in the world. It's kind of the natural air conditioning of of, of the summers here. And um, but yeah, you know, recently we were standing down there, and uh, there was a young mother who was walking up. You know, this, this creek bed was dry, and there's still a little bit of water in the well, and and. Um, she had this little baby with her, you know, just newborn. I said, I, where, where are you from? She said, I came from Houston. And uh, I saw the well on the Internet, and I told my husband that we, we need to come here because I was suffering from postpartum depression. And I, I felt like coming here would, would help help me heal that. I was like, wow. All the way from Houston. All the way from yeah. Houston. Drove up there and... Uh, you know, and I, I remember our friend Johanna brought a Johanna Smith, who is one of our founders, whose land is, her father used to own all that land out there. Uh, she was on our founding board. She brought a an Aboriginal um, from Australia elder there, and uh, he walked up and dropped dropped to his knees and was like, he just you know was just started kind of praying and. You know, it's that kind of place. It's just like it's a sacred place, and and uh, you know, I think you know there was a lot. There's a lot of lore around, you know, the scuba divers and the lost lives and things there. But you think about that spring flowing, maybe for millions of years, um, and just the the beauty and the intelligence of a system like that, and that we have the privilege to you know to experience that seeing it dried up for you know a few thousand track homes it just doesn't seem like a, a fair trade you know it's just it's not it's not what we should Definitely be not. doing and so i think i appreciate the opportunity to talk about it here and and you know i think i think the key is awareness mm-hmm. i think if the folks up there in wood creek north know that the water that they use in their house is the same water that their kids jump in when they jump in Blue Hole or the well, connecting those dots, creating more, um, you know, awareness is really is really the key. And Absolutely. Have you all found many arrowheads, Indian artifact stuff down there? Oh, yeah, yeah. I can't imagine what it was like in the 
1700s, 1600s. I bet it was amazing. For, you know, 15,000 years. I mean, at San Marcos Springs, they've, you know, found, found you know, uh, occupation there for over 15,000 years. Wow. You know that same thing was happening there at the well. I mean, there's there's points all over the place there. There's a big burnt rock midden on the other side uh, where they used to cook food there. Um, it's been looted pretty badly over the years and has not been fully protected like it should be. It's still on private land, but um, yeah, that those were must have been a magnet, you know, for for indigenous people and uh, and you know, an interesting kind of to mo- more modern times when um, that we think that well was named after Jacob de Cordova, and he was a he owned over a million acres of script uh, Spanish land grants in Texas. He came from Jamaica. Was a Jewish kind of entrepreneur. Re- really interesting story. He wrote a book called Texas Her, uh, Natural Resources and Public Men in 1848, and it's it's you know wow. a thick book. <laughs> and he was kind of he was kind of the promoter. You know, he he was like, uh, and he wrote a couple of paragraphs in that book about Jacob's Well. And he said, uh, you know, in, in the in the Rio Blanco Valley, there's this this one um, spring. Um, then he called it Jacob's Well, so I don't know if it was already named that or he just named it after himself. But he said it's well worthy of a visit to all those who del- delight in the sublime and beautiful. You can see a pin down to 40 feet, um, and there are many fine home building sites in the area <laughs> so he was kind of the original uh-huh. you know developer, d- developer coming there. out there to promote it that's too funny but but, but we, the watershed recently or not recently about 2014 we acquired this land that called around rebecca springs down in Colmaw county and it's a spring that's kind of emanating out of this cliffside forms rebecca creek that flows into the uh, guadalupe above above uh, Canyon Lake and the utility company had drilled this well down into the into the spring in 2011 because they had run out of water rights from the from the uh, from Canyon to, to feed this mud that was there uh, about 400 homes and of course when they turned those pumps on this creek dried up the spring stopped and this creek dried up and the landowners got mad they got on the board and they ended up retiring that well and they said you know if we donate this to you we you guys cap this well i was like yeah of course and i'm standing there in this old uh how this old historic house across the way that uh has a cabin from 1850s and uh i said well what's the history of this and the owner said well this was owned by jacob d cordova his wife was rebecca and I'm like, oh, I'm kind of following this guy around the hill country. So Rebecca Springs and Rebecca Creek was Jacob's wife. Oh, wow. So, that, you know, he was going to where the water sources yeah. were. Um, so it's 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 kind of neat to look back on that, you know, recent history. But, yeah, the ancient history there is is just, you know, you know, these were, these were sacred places for, you know, the, these indigenous people. Great. Absolutely. Um, you know, I've heard stories, I don't know how accurate they are, that back in the um, 50s, I don't know, early 1900s, um, Jacob's well used to look like they like like a pot of water boiling, like the mm-hmm. water coming up with that much pressure. Yeah. So I'm curious, I mean, at, at normal flow, at least of today's standards, 
how many gallons an hour or minute or do we have any flow rate statistics of how much water in good flow that actually is? Yeah, you know, um, nor- the normal flow, average flow, generally is between four and eight cubic feet per second. So you think about that, uh, one cubic f- foot per second are, are, ends up being about uh, an acre foot a day, or no, actually two acre feet. So that's 660,000 gallons or so. So, um, you know, two acre feet is 1.2 million. So, you know, so normal flow is probably about around three to four million gallons a day. Wow. Um, and, you know, there's been time, you know, there's times where I've seen it at 80 CFS, you know, after we had big rain and you will see that boiling effect. And, uh, that's where it's just kind of boiling out of the, uh, you know, bubbling up mm-hmm. a couple of feet and, um, Bill Johnson, who, you know, recently passed, who was one longtime landowner there at Blue Hole. We've got video and, and stories as he told about uh, when he was a kid, um, that it, it was like that all the time. He, you jump in there and push you back up. You couldn't really swim back down. The kid in me wow. wants to, I'm sitting here thinking about trying to swim down that, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. if I could. <laughs> and, and he even, in, in this little video we have, um, um, if you go on YouTube and just do Jacob's Old Natural Area, there's there's a little 10-minute video there. And he, uh, they made a, a diving helmet out of like an old, kind of washing machine or something. It was like this <laughs> archaic looking thing. And they, they had a, a compressor pump. And I guess one of them, at one point they had a bicycle pump and they'd go down in this little, little rig and, you know, try to get, see how far it went down. Um, there's a lot of neat stories like that, but he, he, he says, you know, it was, you know, obviously flowing a lot more when we didn't have, you know, aqua and these big wells pumping out of that, that aquifer up there. So, I think that that's a vision for restoration for it. You know, why not? Let's let's have that be the goal. Mm-hmm. Let's let's return it to that level. I think through you know removing that, moving that pumping out of the zone, working to do um, you know certain land restoration, bioswales where we're slowing that water down, putting gabions in these in these ravines where we're we're building more head back behind mm-hmm. that. Um, it's only about 8,000 acres that's the key recharge area there. I think that's doable. You know, we can work with the landowner, private landowners to really, you know, conserve and restore those areas. Um, but, you know, the groundwater pumping, it's just math. You, you can't take out more than is going in. And we get in these critical periods, you've got to cut back. Absolutely. Um, would you mind breaking down? Sorry, I'm having you, you know, give us all sorts of term breakdown today, but groundwater, surface water. I know people get confused by that. Um, would you mind giving us a little breakdown there? Oh, boy. Yeah. Well, surface water, so all this water in the rivers, lakes, that's owned and managed by the state of Texas. That's there's a there is a water rights program where and Frankly, that those water rights have been over allocated by about three to four times what we have on paper as what water we have in those rivers. Um, but that's managed by the state, so you can't go and like get a new permit to pump water out of the Blanco River, most likely unless you buy another right. But groundwater is owned by the landowner in place, so it's a private property right. So, you know. 
if you and and I would argue that you know to really own that water, you you need to put a well in and capture that water, and then you, you know owning it means you can use it because. Um, <laughs> So, but the the groundwater conservation districts regulate that you know how much that can be pumped, except for exempt wells, right? So, in a lot of counties, they have ten acres as a minimum for an exempt well. In Hayes County, if you're going to do a, a subdivision, you have to have six acres to drill a water well for your subdivision, and they require water availability tests, you know, in the beginning before that's platted. But it, that's the difference. It's like Aqua's pumping it out up here, pumping groundwater out, but that's water that's making its way to become surface water at Cypress Creek. It's the same water. So at what point, you know, does the groundwater become the state's water, but is, is intercepting it back here and taking away those downstream rights? And I would argue the value of those properties you know, property that's got waterfront, that's flowing, that's clean, that's worth a lot more than one that's just on a dry creek mm -hmm. bed. So I think that needs to be adjudicated in some way. There needs to be some way to balance this private property, you know, right of taking water from groundwater and the state's, you know, right for that, that surface water. That's a huge, huge uh, issue. And I don't see the state probably changing that those laws um, anytime soon. You know, it's 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 been, you know, brought to the courts through uh, the Day case and the Edwards, and um, there's there is a lot of debate about that. But um, ultimately, it's the same water, mm -hmm. so we should really think of ways how we how do we manage that in a much more um, equitable way, so we don't dry up. Our Texas rivers, you know, Absolutely. especially these hill country rivers, are so primarily, um, um, you know, the pristine what would be considered the pristine streams. There's about 21 or 22 that have that low phosphorus background, and uh, um, you know, the, in that we had a bill a few sessions ago that was focused on. This is a little different topic, but focused on wastewater discharge into those pristine streams. Because they have, uh, you know, below 0 0.01 phosphorus background. And when you discharge wastewater into them, they just turn into algae blooms, right? Mm. So uh, this bill was essentially trying to, you know, ban discharge in those watersheds. It, it, it got through the House, didn't pass the Senate. But uh, I just saw uh, Friday that... Um, you know, because then we kind of turned our focus to focus on rulemaking. Like, let's let's try to make the rules stricter, because I think TCEQ's rule was 0.5, you know, phosphorus, and the background is 0 0.01. So, I think that uh, um, the this case in in uh, on the San Gabriel River, the uh, there was a ruling that the they recommended that it be 0.15 or instead of you know, 0. 0.5. Mm -hmm. So that's a big jump in terms of quality. Uh, but I just, these these streams don't have plants in them to take up phosphorus and take up nitrogen like the Trinity River or the Colorado. These are rock bottom, you know, streams that this can't, they can't absorb. It'll create algae instead of plant growth absorbing. Exactly. Interesting. And, you know, so that's, 
that's part of it. And that water recharges back in the, into the drinking water supplies. So, um, you know, we, we just think probably discharge in the hill country streams is probably not an ideal use of that water. Yeah, I would definitely not be a fan of that. <laughs> uh, well, what have we missed? What's uh, anything going on? You know, what's for Watershed Association? Any big events coming up? You want to get out there? Or Jacob's Well, anything? You know, what's the next six months look like for you? Yeah, you know, we just this past weekend, we had a really neat event at uh, Beerberg Brewery. We had it was called Beers Made by Walking. And uh, it was uh, 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 so Beerberg uh, came together and they brought, I think, 12 or 15 other brewers and they went and toured the Jacobs, uh, Jacobsville Natural Area, Shield Ranch, um, a nature, a nature conservancy preserve on Barton, uh, Barton Creek. And then I think a Colorado uh, Riverland Trust, a private landowner, they collected native plants. And they use those plants to make beers with. And so we tasted them this weekend. It was really a neat. Were they good? Oh, it was awesome. And they had like yopon and they had, you know, juniper berries and mugwort and all these different different plants that were mixed in the beer. It was really, really interesting. But, you know, the land trust got to talk about the work that we do. And and, uh, Trevor from from Beerberg is just – you know, he, he's just an amazing uh, herbalist. He, he took us on that walk, and, you know, even the parking lot, we're like, wow, look at all these plants that, you know, have these different he, – he educated us so much about, you know, what, what's there. So that was cool. Um, I think the big – the next six months, the, the big thing is really going to be can we get Aqua Texas to, to really come together with us and try to solve some of these those overpumping issues, the leaks – moving these wells, really work on a more comprehensive pa- uh, plan. We're thinking of creating a what kind of watershed task force where we would really try to solve some of these, these long-term um, um, issues around the, the lack of water and the, the demand, uh, how are we going to bridge that, uh, that delta. Um, you know, I think closing on uh, this Karst Canyon Preserve, transferring that to the county is a big deal. Um, We've got this Art for Water program. I think we I yeah, I saw that. I saw it in your cup. What is the Art for Water program? So, so that that this this is one of the images we have um, about sixty five of these these amazing art kites. They're big, you know, kites that have been. We put out a call to artists that uh, they sent in um, their their art based on uh, water and springs, and it's called the Sacred Springs Kite Exhibition. We had we hung these at the Austin um, um, downtown library there um, for about seven months. They were in the San Marcos Library. We've got a small exhibit now at uh, Bergstrom Airport, oh, and cool. uh, and on our website you could buy. There's there's I think uh, eight of these the the different great springs that were done by John Mata, kind of in that national park style. Uh, but there's all different kinds of art um, that's represented there. And um, so we, we intend that to tour around to bring awareness to these great springs and how important they are to Texas and to our heritage and to our future. And, um, you know, we think art's a great lens, you know, to bring attention, you know, the data and, and all the acronyms. People are like, oh, no more. Show me pretty pictures. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> show, me, show me something pretty. And, 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 you know, 
you know, make me feel something. And so that's what this is about. And, uh, um, you know, I think the, the center, you know, the flow center, the, we, we bought the six and a half acres there at uh, the front of Blue Hole Park, and we're in the process of redesigning that to become, you know, performing arts and art, uh, art galleries, cafe. Uh, we've got a Blanco River Academy school there that we're, you know, we're helping them raise money. It's an uh, environmental-based school. And so that's going to be a, essentially a campus um, working with uh, Texas State Meadows Center on our watershed protection plan, as well as the humanities department there. Uh, they've started an engaged ecology program, um, a Ph.D. program with engaged ecology. And, and so that's more the humanities looking at, you know, um, what is our, you know, we're not separate from nature. We are nature. It's, it's more of a deeper dive into kind of how we feel about the natural world and our place in it. So we're, we got a lot of fingers in a lot of different places, but um, I think the, you know, our number one thing is it's got to rain again, right? It's going to rain. I'm going to do my rain dance every morning. I don't know what's going on. Got to do our rain dance. Cause man, it is, it's, it's grim out there. You know, we, we need, we need that rain, but in the meantime, I think we need people to, to, you know, keep conserving, even though it rains a little bit. Um, I call that the hydroelogical cycle, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, everything's fine. We can just go back. But it's, you know, we're still in drought here, even though we're still about 20 inches behind in rainfall. And so, you know, until you see that river really flowing at its full capacity, um, and you see that that we're not in these these drought stages. I think people need to continue to conserve, um, and then this just this innovation. I think I think we're going to really be looking at this kind of one water, at the residential scale. How do we really scale up that approach? Um, and and I think we need some demonstration projects where we can show that the proof of concept that it works, um, and. You know, and, and I think just this networking of organizations, you know, we, we you know, I say if the, if the problem is a 50-gallon drum, you know, our organization's a teacup dipping out of there, but we got a 1,000 teacups dipping in there, we can, we can make an impact. So um, and this collaboration is really important. And, you know, the things you've done for West Cave, I, I just can't say enough about how important it is to get, young people out in nature if absolutely maybe that is the greatest act of stewardship we could do is to is to take a young person fishing or take them on a hike or take them swimming uh you know this we spend so much time when well, we all do in front of our screens but you know let's get it get them outside get them to see the beauty and and feel that joy of jumping in that those spring waters and um you know i think i think that's you know, I so admire what West Cave has done, and we hope to emulate some of those program programmatic aspects at the Flow Center. That's great. Love to hear it. Well, how can uh, what can we do for people to get a hold of you? I mean, how do you how would you like do you want people reaching out? I mean, how, yeah. what's going on? Yeah, probably the best thing to do is is just go to uh, watershedassociation.org, You know, sign up for our newsletter there. And, um, you know, we've got a ton of, of information. We've got a li searchable library with all these studies and research. We, we you know, we have 
also Facebook and Instagram sites that we post things pretty much daily, things on there that are happening. Got a great calendar of events around the region. Um, you know, I think these other organizations, Hill Country Alliance, Hill Country Conservancy, Nature Conservancy, uh, San Marcos River Foundation, um, there's so many groups that are doing, you know, Trinity Edwards Springs Protection Association. There's, you know, over 150 organizations across the whole Hill Country that are part of this uh, Texas Hill Country Conservation Network. You know, find the groups that are in your area or that are, in, you know, in your area of interest and join them get involved make it make a contribution uh be be a member um and um you know i think we can i mean we have to we've got to make a difference uh because there's no other choice right mm -hmm. <laughs> um the, yeah this cup texas water trade is one of the groups we work with they're um you know working on this this kind of they call it net zero water working, you know, all over the state to, to ensure that there's going to be um, clean water, you know, in the future as we grow. Double our population by 2050. Um, we're going to have to be much more innovative than, than we have been in the past. And, and there are people doing the work. So, um, you know, so many groups, I, I can't even name them all, but, but, but uh, you know, just support these these local groups. Get involved in your community and um, really f know where your water is coming from and know if that that source is protected. And if you've got a rain tank, if you if you you got one, thank you. And if you haven't, consider that because mm -hmm. that one act I think can really make a big difference. That's great. Well, thank you for all you've done for conservation and Jacob's well. You know, I don't think we would all. Today, you know, in large part to you, have Jacob's Wells, the park, and the access that we do today. And so I've jumped off that rock many a time. So I thank you very much for that. Um, everything, you know, Watershed Association is doing for conservation. So if there's anything we can do to help with that, uh, we would absolutely love to. And um, we'd love to have you back on some point down the line, check back in on things, see how it's doing, or um, maybe have you come on and uh, with a friend, you know, you'd mentioned a buddy of yours with the One Water School. You know, that maybe yeah. we have you guys back on and then dive into that. It'd be a good time. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you, you guys, for for having me and and let me just ramble on and talk about all this stuff because it's a, uh, it's you know, it's been a big part of my life this this past thirty plus years. But um, you know, it's great to find you know find a cause that's that's bigger than yourself that you know, you know, will hopefully live on beyond you and um, you know I, I just I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it because I feel like at this point in my life what I want to do is really I want to encourage this next generation like you guys I mean we, we got to pass this torch to to keep this this ethic grow this ethic and and uh, and conservation you know we, we we maybe don't think about it a lot but it's it's so important I think for the quality of life and and for the things we love here. And, and uh, uh, you guys are doing a great service, and I, I appreciate, especially coming as a builder to this, that, that I think that's the conversation we need to have, right? Is how, do we, how do we build more sustainably and, um, and have policies that are going to support that and, and you know, create some more access for people to that access these, uh, these places and that have been traditionally maybe out of reach, um, but thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Of course. Thank you for your time. We appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, David. Thanks. And we're out.